welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. We're in a series on Moses, uh, creatively titled Moses. <clears throat> Spent a lot of time on that one. Took us a couple weeks to get to, but we feel like we nailed it. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, Exodus 2. And um, I'll just, uh, a little refresher from last week. Ian, if you can bring up the house lights a little, all the way, uh, that'd be awesome. Um, we talked about names last week and the importance of names, the, 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 the importance of and the place that they hold in the story of God, in the scriptures. Uh, we were introduced to a couple of names in this story of the Exodus, and we talked about them. Moses, of course, means to draw from the water. Uh, we were talked about a place called Egypt, which is more than a place, uh, but has this sense of, uh, and, and actual, actually means the narrow place. And then lastly, we talked about kind of the big one, uh, Exodus 3, verse 14, where God tells Moses his name, Eshe, Asher, Eshe, which um, isn't actually a name so much as a verb. Uh, and so I want to just clarify one thing I talked about last week in terms of this one. Um, and I offered the translation, I will be what I will be, is a more faithful rendering of the text. Uh, and talked about the difference between a noun and a verb. And oftentimes, uh, but if you're paying attention and you're, you're interested in grammar, you'll know that I will be what I will be and I am what I am are both verbs. <clears throat> it's the verb to be, right? Um, and what I meant and what I was trying to get at, what I implied is that I think often when we approach God, when we talk about God, when we study God, it's as if God has given us a noun as God's name that we can sort of classify, determine, look at, observe, static, that sort of thing. And I think that's true. Um, But what's interesting about when God is asked what God's name is, God doesn't give a proper name or a proper noun, but rather a verb. Uh, And more specifically, a verb that's in the future tense, And even more specifically than that, the imperfect future tense, which has the past, present, and future all wrapped up in one. So you start to dig a little bit, and you realize why this gives people fits on how to really translate that. So uh, in case that wasn't clear last week, or you were stuck on the fact that I didn't have my proper grammar, which I I was not good in grammar, guys. I was not. You know, subjects, nouns, verbs, prepositions, it's all Greek to me, as they say. Thank you very much. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to focus on this passage we we sort of passed over last week. Uh, No pun intended, the Exodus Passover. Uh, It's it's the story of Moses' birth, right? It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And this is really a teaching that I hope challenges kind of the fundamental assumptions that we have about who God is, what God is like. We come from a culture that has all sorts of feelings and thoughts and commentaries about what God is like. Just go on the interwebs, the Googles, and you can find all sorts of people who say all kinds of things about what God is like, who God is, how God acts, or how God's people act in the world. And I want to just let the story speak and say, what does it say about who God is? So stand if you can. We'll read from uh, Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. It says this. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went to get the baby's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Pray with me. God, as we open this text and this story, I pray, and it's my hope, that it is not just a story, that it is more than that. I pray that it's not out of religious duty or obligation that we come, but rather that we have a desire to hear you speak. And God, I pray that you would do just that, that you would find us where we are, in despair or in hope and joy, and that you would speak a word of hope, of comfort, of grace, of peace, of love, all of the things that you are. I pray that you would just make yourself known to us. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So this is a story that's kind of dripping with irony. Uh, and if, you're, if, you, if you have eyes to see it, I think it becomes quite clear quite quickly. Um, we know from the reading of the story, right, we're on this side of history, and we look back and we read this story, and we know that, this, that the Jewish people's um, fate hangs in the balance with Moses, right? There's a decree that's been made, all the, all the Hebrew babies be killed, and it's Moses that will be the one who brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so we know this whole thing hangs in the balance on this guy, on Moses. And so we look back, and we notice that it's a bit ironic, not only that it's this Moses guy who's sort of born out of total anonymity, right? Just random. A Levite and a Levite, they get married, they have a son, no big deal. Not only that, but it's the, it's, it's the oppressor's daughter who finds Moses, right? I mean, if you're sort of thinking about a screenplay, this is a bit, this is, this is good tension, right? The oppressive regime who's over and above and has the thumb on Israel, it's the daughter of the person in charge who finds Moses. Not only that, but it says the te- in the text it says that she saw Moses in the reeds. Now, this is a thread, a, a, a current in scripture that is very, very strong. What does it mean to see? We find Jacob uh, in front of his father, Isaac, standing there. His father can't see him, thinks it's Esau. We find Jacob later in the story with a, a woman that he thinks is one lady and it's not. He wakes up the next morning. That's an interesting one, right? How do you do that exactly? But he can't see the, I mean, think about the humanity that's being talked about here. If to know is not just knowledge, cognitive, but it's far deeper. What does it mean to be with someone and not see them? To be overlooked. Ever been there? Where somebody's like with you in a room and they literally don't see you. Oh, I mean, that, that goes deep. And so it's, the oppressive regime's daughter who sees the servant of the Lord. I mean, really, you can't make it up. So it's terribly ironic. Moses, again, total anonymity. Uh, All the text says is that a Levite man marries a Levite woman. 
they conceive and have a son. No big deal, right? Happens every day. They conceive a, a, a child and have a son. No biggie. And she uh, finds him, uh, what does it say? And she saw that he was fine. Nothing going on here. But of course, if you've been around awake and long enough, you know that there's something going on here. Dramatic pause. <laughs> and in this one, I, this is the kind of stuff I love, right? When I find this sort of thing, I'm like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. That's right there in the text. We never we miss it. So what is happening here? I'm going to put on the screen uh, the transliteration of the, of the words, uh, and, and she saw that he was fine. Not to show off, but to, because it's going to be helpful in a second. So... If you're reading Hebrew, this is what it sounds like phonetically. Watere oto kitov. Okay? So keep that in mind. All right? Now, turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles. If you don't, it's on your phone, maybe. And there are Bibles in the back. Verse 11 says this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. In the creation account, we have this trope, right? This, this, this refrain that happens again and again and again. And God saw that it was good. God saw. God's the first person in the scriptures to see. God declares something is good. And here we have in this, this, this sort of memorable, and God saw that it was good. If you've read the creation story, you're familiar with this phrase. Here's that phrase in the Hebrew again. Wayar Elohim Kitov. Now here they are next to each other. Our Exodus phrase on the top, our Genesis phrase on the bottom. Different subject. We've got God and she which changes the tense of the verb to see, which is the word on the left. But the words on the right, exactly the same. This is the first usage of this phrase, and they saw it was good, since the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. What is the author of the Exodus story telling us? as this story opens up. We're in the prologue here, gang. This is chapter two of the story. We're still talking about the birth of the hero that will be the, the, the main subject, the main character. What is happening as this story opens? Maybe you could form the answer uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the way of a question, a la Jeopardy. Thank you, Alex Trebek. What is good? What is good? In Genesis, right, this creation poem... There's this refrain that God has made, and what God has made, God saw that it was good. It's a marker. God sees it and declares it as good. And in particular, if you read Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12 give the most definition and the most content about what God saw as good. Then if you skip forward in, in the scriptures to Isaiah 55, you hear the subject or the idea in Genesis 1, 11 and 12 being echoed back by Isaiah the prophet. And it's this idea that what God calls good is something that God plants or embeds in creation that has the potential of life when the creation itself brings it forth. Okay, you tracking so far? So the plants have the seeds of their own kind and they, they bear fruit, right? And those things then have the seeds of future life in them. And what God calls good is when creation itself, 
participates in this ongoing flourishing and delight, as it were. This is what God calls good. This is what is called tov. And what is good or what is tov is a question that, again, is a river in the stream of the text that's all the way through it from the beginning of the Old Covenant to the end. So, friends, this is a, a, a definition. Uh, I've studied with this rabbi. Many of you know his name's Alan. He says it this way. The actualization of potential life embedded in creation by God when creation itself, when creation brings it forth with the seeds of future life in it. So smart biblical scholars who do theology and the work of of interpreting the text, what is the author of Exodus trying to tell us in this moment? What is happening here? What kind of moment are we talking about here? This is big. God is up to something here. The same God who is hovering over the watery chaos in Genesis 1 is here in Exodus 2. The same God that breathed the life into Adam who becomes a living nefesh, a living soul, is here in this moment in Exodus 2. The same God who draws the light out of the darkness in Genesis 1 is here present in Exodus 2. The same God who embeds in creation the seeds of life and then invites creation to participate is here present in this moment. That God is here. So just when you think all is lost, just when you think the story couldn't get any more depressing, when the king of the oppressive regime decrees that all the baby boys are killed, so as a mom, you not only lose your precious child, but as a people group, this is an action of total and complete annihilation as a people group. You will no longer be remembered. In that moment, hang on, because things will have just begun. That God is here. When the writer of Exodus says, oh, so there's this guy, there's this girl. She marries this Levite. They have a son. They conceive a son. They have a son. He's born. And she says he is fine. At which point you just want to say to some of the translators, like, not helpful. Sometimes they do things to sort of help us along, but that's not what it says, and we miss a key to what the author's doing. You cannot forget that the people who wrote this book are master storytellers. Guys, give them a face. Give them a name. They are people. Whoever wrote this was brilliant, and they didn't miss anything. So when Moses' mother says, and she saw that he was good, the original audience would have been like, oh, snaps! (laughs) They're right back in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. And somehow, something about that moment where this God is present is now present here in this moment when all around looks like death and despair. Come on now. It's no wonder it's called the Evangelion, the good news, because this is the kind of God we're talking about here. And what does the mother of Moses, who calls him good, do with that child in the next verse? Play along, not a trick question. It's easy, you know this. She puts him in the water. In a what? In a wicker basket. Hmm. I mean, a wicker basket, like, no big deal, right? Makes total sense. You've got a child. You don't want him to die. You put him in a basket. You put some pitch and caulk in there, you know, like we do. And you put him out into the river, right? Like you do. Um, before I show this next slide, does anybody know of a story in the Bible that has to do with water and some sort of 
carrying vessel. This is Russell Crowe, friends. The word that's used is exactly the same word as Ark of Noah in Genesis 6. It's not a wicker basket. It's the Ark, Teva. Now, the, uh, before that, I think, yeah, Teva equals Ark, okay? There are other words that mean basket that could have been used, and they weren't. It's Teva. So the actual Hebrew reads this way, the next slide, Watika lo Teva. It's the same exact word as Genesis 6, at which point, you brilliant scholars of the text, you should be asking yourself, what is the author of Exodus trying to tell us about this story that Moses' mother, who declares him good and then places him in the teva? What is happening here? Why would she do that? Now, gang, I know, believe me, I know, that when you start talking about Genesis 6 and the ark and the flood, it gets dicey real quick, right? Because, listen, everybody dies. I skip the story when I tell it, when, when I read the, the Bible to my kids, because this is not fit for small children, right? I mean, what do you do when your six-year-old says, so God killed everybody? Now, let me break down some of the semantics here and why that might... No, I just skip it. I do. I don't know about you. And, 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 and this little video we show at the beginning, Awaken, we want it to be a place where you have the permission to ask questions. And have you ever had a hard time with the story of Noah and the arky barky gopher wood? Anybody? Anybody? I'm the only one. No, okay, a few of you. To me, and especially, especially... If you have a view of God that's kind of the blueprint God where God is the author and divine executor of everything that happens in the world, you've got serious issues with this text. And some people say, you know, like, listen, gang, we, be- we-, we value the Bible. We believe the Bible. We're literalists. We're biblicists. At which point I would say, not nah, really. Because everybody, everybody picks and chooses When we read the scriptures, we have to interpret them. Nobody that I have ever met in my entire life, the most devout, pious person I have ever, religious, devoted, nobody believes every single bit of this and does it. Women, you should all be having your heads covered at this point. None of you should be talking. If we're going to do it literally. I mean, we don't, so we pick and choose and we determine how to, how to read something as literal or not literal. That's the hard part about interpretation. That's the hard part about this book. It's the hard part about community because sometimes we disagree on these things. But what if there's another way to read the story of Noah and Genesis 6 where it's not so much a symbol of destruction and death but rather of something else? What if this is a text that's actually a literary work of art that, that no less inspired, don't hear me wrong, no less God's word, no less you know, uh, the perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, good covenant theology, right? for us as the people of God. But what if this is actually a a work of art and it's literature? And what if, here's a possibility, there's a lot of debate on who wrote the five books of Moses. I personally happen to believe that it wasn't Moses. I think if it's Moses, it creates more problems than it gives us answers. My understanding of this text and when it could have been written is that it's written by an exilic community looking back on history, trying to make sense of why they're in exile and who this God is. 
If that's the case, then you have an exilic community looking back on history, trying to make sense of an event, a flood event, that is in almost every ancient Near Eastern culture's lore, okay? Everybody has a flood story, which is to say something happened. And everybody's trying to make sense of why it happened. So if this is true, and it's an exilic community looking back on the events of, of, of history, trying to tell the story, then the question that one needs to ask is not how did this happen or how did he build the ark or why, but rather what does it tell us about God? The way the story is told. So let's unpack that. Here you have a God, a creator God, who doesn't create out of hate or animosity or chaos, but rather out of love, out of self-giving love that wells up inside, creates out of hope, out of, out of life, out of beauty, and creates. And then that God, who creates out of love, because love necessitates freedom, gives freedom to that which God has created in the form of humanity, and these humans actually have choices that they can make that have real-life implications. And so then the text tells us that all of humanity is headed towards this destructive end. That all of humanity, save this one, Noah and his family, do not have the seeds of Tove in them, but rather are choosing something other than that. Self-imposed, unadulterated, evil and destruction, and the whole thing is headed that way. And then God covenants God's self to this humanity and this earth, And the ark becomes not a symbol of destruction, but rather a symbol of salvation and the way by which God makes new life grow out of something that looks like death all around. Now, that's an interesting reading of the text. I get it. But as I wrestle with it, I can't do this bit about God's up there pulling the strings and orchestrating it all. And yeah, God's like pulls the, you know, like turns the faucet on and then just stands back and is like, well, sorry, gang. I just don't think that looks like Jesus at all. So you got to figure out another way to read that that's more consistent with what we know to be true about God, which is the, re- rep- the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. Hebrew says it's the exact representation. So if your understanding about who God is and what God is about and what you believe about God doesn't match with Jesus, then I would say go back to the drawing board. So in this sense, the ark becomes not a symbol of destruction, but rather this thing that God uses to bring life out of death all around because this is the kind of God that's present. Noah's teva is a rudderless, sailless, oarless, gearless boat that has no way to guide itself and is totally dependent upon God's grace and salvation for it to make it. What does it mean to take what you hope, dream, and love and place it in the ark of God, in the teva? Here we have in the story of Exodus a mother who has a son that she calls good, that she loves, that she has hopes and dreams for, just like any mother in this room would for their son. And she places it in, not a wicker basket, but an ark. What is being said here? What does it mean to take what you hope, dream for, love, and place it in the care of the God who can and seemingly does bring life when everything else around you looks like death. That's the God of this story. So if you've taken this survey, you probably know that one of the things that we're wondering about at Awaken is, does this space serve us anymore? I mean, look around, right? I saw some of you come in looking for seats. Uh, We have lots of kids. Man, there are gaggles of kids running around here. Does this place still serve our community? 
And so we've been looking at options about where could we meet, where would we go. And uh, truth be told, when we first started this place, I could not imagine this church anywhere other than this place. I love this place. When we leave here, I will, I will shed tears because it's the only home we've ever known. And I, I didn't even have an imagination for somewhere else. I was like, no, this is our home. This is where we do it. This is awakened. You're awakened. Come on, Micah. I mean, you should be teaching me, right? You're, this isn't the church. You are. So we've been looking at other places and wandering around, and one, one in particular that, we had, that I have fallen in love with. And uh, uh, we had a meeting set. I was on the Boundary Waters. I came back on Monday. We had a meeting set Wednesday to meet with the realtor and the, uh, the, the business manager of the church. Um, two churches merged, and this one's empty. I've, I've actually had dreams about this place. Like, I can imagine and I can see Awaken in this place. So my heart is just all wound up in this thing. I'm driving home on Monday, and I, you know, turn on my, my phone after being in the woods for four days, and I have an email from the realtor saying that there's another church, another group that uh, has made an offer on this place, and it's probably going to go through, and so it's gone. And there's a moment of silence. Corky, our, the chair of our church, is driving the car, and we just sit silently for a bit, and... Uh, and I go from, like, possibility and hope and excitement to, like, just despair. Like, oh, this thing that I, I literally have dreamt about. I can see us there. And then it's just poof, gone. And do you know what story came to mind? Abraham and Isaac. When God says, take this thing that you love, this son, take your son, your son Isaac, the one whom you love, first usage of the word love in the scriptures, Take that son and sacrifice him on the altar. And I just said, okay, God, this is my Isaac. And I literally, in my mind's eye, took this place and I gave it to God on the altar and I walked away. I deleted emails in my, in my heart. It died. It was in an ark. Everything else, it was gone. So I'm brewing beer on Monday. <laughs> and guess what shows up in my inbox? Hey, uh, that deal is likely to fall through. Are you guys still interested? Now, gang, I'm not going to make any kind of, you know, declaration about, well, you know, when you put your thing in the ark, God gives it back to you. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you guys would like slap me out to the curb. I'm not going to do that. But I will say that for me, in my own spirit, in my own journey, that was real. And I grieved it, and I lost it, and I gave it to God, and I said, okay, I, I can't see the future. I don't, know where, uh, I, I don't know the answer to this question. And that one for me was like where I had my whole heart wrapped up in it, and it just got like ripped out, and I'm bleeding here. But, okay. And I don't know if this place will work out. We're trying to figure out if we can afford it. And I, I, I think if you, if you see it and, and you saw it and you heard, I think, I think it's pretty, pretty cool. And so if you could pray, you could pray about that. But what does it mean to entrust your hopes and dreams into in the thing that's most precious to you, into the thing that only God can care for? 
and only God can provide, even when everything else around it looks like death. Will the God that you believe in bring life out of that? Last, quickly, there's this abandoned hero motif uh, in this story, we find like the, the motif or, or the, uh, the structure of a story that is found all over the place. If you go back and you look at other literature of, of this time, you find that there is this sort of uh, uh, template of a hero in a story who's abandoned, who's found, who's rescued, saved, adopted, and then sort of rises to power. It is everywhere, okay? Every, every uh, ancient Near Eastern culture had a creation account, Every, most of them had flood stories, and lots of them had a story just like this one. So when you come to a, a text like this, I, this is as close as I'll ever get to apologetics at Awaken, because usually apologetics is all about like defending something and having like a very combative stance, and I'm just not interested in that. But I think it's, you should have good reason for why you believe what you believe. Your experience should support that. I think that your wrestling with science and reason should at least be somewhat compatible with your faith. You shouldn't have to stand on an island to believe something when everything else scientifically and reasonably says otherwise. You should probably start looking for a new faith at that point. One of the things that we find in the scriptures is that the Bible stands head and shoulders above or different than all of these other creation accounts, flood stories, and abandoned hero motifs. Let me just give you one example, and hopefully you see the differences, okay? This is called Sargon, the legend of Sargon's from, uh, like, Egypt, uh, same time frame. It says this, Sargon, strong king, king of Agade, am I. My mother was a high priestess. My father, I do not know. My paternal kin inhabit the mountain region. My city of birth is Azupiranu, which lies on the bank of the Euphrates. My mother, a high priestess, conceived me. In secret, she bore me. She placed me in a reed basket with bitumen. She cocked my hatch, like you do. She abandoned the river. She abandoned me to the river, which I could not escape. The river carried me along to Aki, the water drawer, right? Right? What does Moses mean? He's drawn from the... I mean, it's, very, it's all very similar. Drawn, uh, Aki, the water drawer, when immersing his bucket, lifted me up... Aki, the water drawer, raised me as his adopted son. Aki, the water drawer, we get it at this point, sent me to his garden to work. During my garden work, Ishtar loved me that I would rule 55 years as king. Totally foreign to the Bible. Not a part of the scriptures. And yet, here we find two stories about an abandoned hero found, raised, adopted, and then become this powerful leader. Interesting, right? What are some of the differences that you note? And you can do this with, and I would encourage you to, Look at these texts that are in our, whole, in our sacred text, in our, our scriptures, and compare them to some of the others. And you find that Sargon is born of an illicit relationship, whose mother was a, a priestess in a, in a fertility cult where they were sort of uh, sworn to celibacy, as it were. So she's got a, a, a very scandalous birth. Moses, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Moses, on the other hand, totally ho-hum, legitimate, lawful Levite marriage happened every day. Sargon abandoned in the, in the river without a care to his survival. Rather, Moses, mother, took great care for his survival. Sargon is like abandoned, like thrown to the river is the word that's used. Moses is placed, and there's actually, the word is actually like cared for and lovingly placed. Very, very different. Moses is, uh, or Sargon's found by a commoner. Moses is found by a princess. And then, in all these other ancient or Eastern stories, the, the hero becomes a, the usurper of the authority that's in power. Whereas in this story, Moses is sort of this uh, random guy who doesn't want to lead but becomes the leader of God's people. All that to say, the Exodus story and the writer is taking great detail 
to make sure that you know that this is a qualitatively different kind of God that we're talking about here. So as we close, I would ask you this. What kind of God did you walk in here with? If you believe that God exists, what kind of God are we talking about? What are the things that you know to be true about God? Depending on who you talk to, the God of the Bible is a, God, is a bloodthirsty God of war. Read Joshua killing, apparently, thousands upon thousands of innocent women and children. Not just the men and the warriors. No, kill them all. That this God is a God of like wrath and vengeance. And I just would stop and say, really? I mean, I get it if you, I get it if you, if you read it with that lens or, or you read it with particular ways of understanding it, you could get there. But if you pay attention to these subtle little cues that Moses' mother calls him good, what does that mean? What is the author telling us about this moment that she places him in an ark where everything else looks like death around and God brings life out of this moment? What kind of God are we talking about here? So I'll invite John Mark and the band to come, and we'll close with one song. But before we do that, I want to just offer you a moment of silence or two to consider a couple of questions. One, do you believe that God is at work behind the scenes, bringing tov, good, out of situations that look like death? And what feels like looks like death to you right now? Has God abandoned you? Are you on your own? Is that the end of the story? Or does this story tell of a different God? And then the follow-up question is, do you believe that this God, I will be what I will be, is qualitatively different to the degree that you can trust him. That you can trust God with everything. And maybe you've done that before, and maybe there are parts of you that you hang on to that it's like, ah, all but not that. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you have too many questions about who this God is, the God of Christianity, the God revealed in Jesus. And I would just offer for your consideration today that the God of this story is a God who finds good, who embeds good, beauty, and life in creation, and then asks you and me to partner with this God to bring it out. That this is a God who rescues, who redeems, who restores, who hears and sees. Exodus 2 ends with God remembering, seeing, hearing, and knowing. What does that say? So maybe just for a moment or two of silence, consider those two questions, and they'll stay on the screen for just a bit. Let me offer a word of prayer, and then, God, as we stop for just a second in the midst of a busy and crazy life that we live, help us to breathe deep, recognizing you're the God who gave breath, Help us to see you for who you are. Whatever images, whatever patterns, whatever 
views or beliefs we have about you that are not consistent with Jesus, I pray that they would just fall off like scales and that we would see you for who you are. A God who is about goodness and tov and life, who invites us to partner with you. Help us see you. Man, you guys sound fantastic. I love sitting up front. I hear you all. Awaken, my hope and my prayer for you is that you, that we, become the kinds of people who recognize that in each one of us, God has embedded something of value, of life, of beauty, of hope. And that we become the kinds of people who help bring that out in each other. And that the Yahoo at the cubicle next to you, Tov, somewhere, deep down inside, there's Tov there. And that you become the kinds of people who recognize it, name it, bring it out. And that we trust that the God of this story is the God who is always at work, even when only death is around us. Amen? Those kinds of people are at the party, and they are the party. So I hope that we become those kinds of people. They're not downers. They're not lamos. You know? So may that be true of you, okay? Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.